inconceivable. You give you send a horse. I do not think it means what you think it means. We live? Mm-hmm. There we go. Um, welcome to our podcast. That word, I do not think it means what you think it means. Um, this is what we do along with the book that we published, uh, a shorthand book of misunderstanding, and hopefully we can contribute a little bit to help people understand where they might be misunderstanding each other, starting with the very words that we use. So I'm Matthew. Uh, this is my co-host and co-author, Shimon. And um, if you're about to celebrate Purim or uh, Mardi Gras or Carnival or whatever the appropriate um, drunken holiday of the season is for you, um, go enjoy. And um, yeah, our topic for today is, well, our starting point is what on earth is Clubhouse? All right. So I guess I'll jump in here. Um, Clubhouse is a, is a new app that many people probably heard about at this point. Uh, it's got, you know, I think some 10 million users. It's the kind of the newest, hottest social media craze. And uh, I've been on it for the last, I think, month now. And I found it to be a very interesting because it's audio forward. And so what it is, is it's just like rooms and rooms and rooms of people having conversations. And you can jump into a conversation or out of a conversation. And I, I just have found it kind of a fascinating phenomena where I'm, I'm kind of cruising through conversations, finding something that's interesting to talk about, and sometimes just listening, sometimes talking in and contributing, jumping in and contributing. But for the most part, it's just kind of, it's a fascinating world where lots of people are getting together and having nuanced conversations, kind of polar and diametric opposite of the rest of social media, where in the rest of social media, it's all kind of flame wars and gotcha moments. Uh, most of my experiences at Clubhouse, at least the well-moderated ones, have been more nuanced, more people having actual real conversations, which I, I find refreshing and I think uh, I think valuable. Uh, unfortunately, it's only for iPhone at the moment, so that excludes a good portion of the world's kind of population. Um, one of the, the areas of where I keep gravitating towards within Clubhouse is actually areas that revolve around some of the things that you and I talk about all the time is like free speech and like the duopoly and all kinds of other you know topics that we talk about regularly yeah and i heard an interesting idea recently that like you know free speech the fundamental sort of american concept of free speech and the way it's defined in the constitution is that the government specifically can't restrict other people's speech that even if it's offensive even if it's unwelcome, even if it's unpalatable. Um, the, you know, the founding fathers decided that the, uh, the upside of hearing all those opinions outweighed the downside of what might happen if people heard those opinions. Um, so the idea I heard recently, it, it, it's more relevant, very recently, you might say, since uh, you could argue since the since the Biden administration took over is if the government is pressuring social media companies to um, to censor, especially around things like, uh, you know, COVID and vaccines and stuff, even though there's one degree removed, um, you know, Brett and Heather Weinstein were talking about this recently, even if it's one degree removed and technically it's not the government censoring anyone's speech, it's Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or 
I don't know, clubhouse, whatever. Um, does that actually constitute a, a violation of the First Amendment? Because the government, you know, the spirit of the First Amendment is the government shouldn't censor speech. So if the government is pressuring Facebook to uh, put warnings and then to actually take down um, pages and, and posts, um, maybe we are in violation of First Amendment territory. Um, so maybe you can tell us, is that operative on Clubhouse in the way that we've all probably seen recently on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter? So the basic answer is not that I can tell, but also it would be kind of impossible to know if that makes sense. Because kind of the dynamics of Clubhouse are such that anybody who's on the app can open a room. And then when you open a room, you're the moderator of that room. And then you get to moderate who gets to speak who doesn't get to speak within that room so people raise their hands and you kind of invite them up to what's called the stage and if you're on the stage you can talk and if you're not then you can just listen and sometimes you'll go into rooms where there's only two people on the stage talking and some those are some of the more interesting rooms like there was a room of uh of uh eric weinstein and jesse michaels they talked for like two hours and it was just fascinating kind of material um kind of the same kind of podcasty experience but more in a live fashion um mm. and there are other rooms that are just more kind of free-flowing but really it's all it's all moderator driven so i can't tell you if the kind of the the powers that be of clubhouse uh, the 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 owners founders etc are putting their thumb on any one scale or not or removing users or throttling users it's certainly algorithm driven because what the rooms that you see it's not like you can go anywhere it's kind of served up to you so it's possible that they're doing some kind of um, throttling of speech in that way, but uh, I found it to be kind of an interesting experience, uh, that's to say the least. Yeah, that is interesting. I mean, full disclosure, I am not a, um, maybe I'm too contrary to own an iPhone anymore, um, so I'm not able to uh, see it. It's only um, iOS, iPhone eligible, I gather, at the moment. Um, but uh, I am also... Full disclosure, the uh, founder and former CEO of a, a startup that lasted about six years and failed that um, it, it spoke to very much the issue of moderation and transparency in moderation, in curation, in how do you see what uh, other people think, including the people who are deciding um, to sort of make the biases transparent was sort of inherently built into the, the product that I helped create. And that actually was the descendant of a, a previous project, which is a nonprofit called the New Jerusalem Talmud, which was more or less based on the way of thinking of the Jewish Talmud and where we tried to create a, a discourse platform um, which had at least a few features in common, I gather, with, with Clubhouse and with Discord and stuff like that, that uh, if anyone isn't familiar with the Talmud, and maybe most of our listeners aren't or are, but um, uh, for, for thousands of years, Jews have been having arguments, uh, all kinds of arguments, and the arguments have been very wide-ranging, and the, uh, the methodology of recording those arguments was that Minority opinions, uh, even ones that, so to speak, lose a given argument, are generally preserved. And the uh, method of continuing to learn from those old arguments is that you should be able to uh, strongman or justify or argue from 
the perspective of the side of the argument or the sides of the argument that lost. There's also no presumption of two sides. So sometimes there's four or five different opinions. And even though at the end of the day, uh, Jews might say, well, here's what you really should do, or here's what, what we're all going to do in this moral situation, um, you can certainly go back and look at the sources and decide for yourself um, up to, you know, up to a certain point. So I, I, I'm sort of coming from a way of thinking that says there's a, there's, there's a possibility of genuinely um, hearing other sides, strong manning the other side, and can we do that live so i just kind of this is this is a picture of a <clears throat> page of the talmud just for those who aren't familiar with it and kind of the main text in the center is the main discussion and then there's top fringe discussions and one of the things that i always found interesting about your new jerusalem talmud project back when you were kind of building it was this idea that the form kind of drives the content to some extent we have the main thread of the conversation then you have side threads of conversation and i, I was always somewhat sad to see that it didn't, didn't uh it didn't pan out well, or not that it didn't pan out well, but it didn't, it never really took off in a way that I think could have been a really good positive influence on the world. One thing though, you were riffing on in the, in the Talmud, which I think is interesting. And I've, I've been thinking about a lot lately is that actually the only side that's really preserved by name is the side that's wrong or the side mm. that's not the side that's not, uh, it, it's the side that's not the, the kind of the going with the flow. So it says like, Rabbi Yossi says this, and the and the sages say this, and the and the Talmud doesn't really ever come down with a kind of a, a legal decision. They're not like this side is right and this side is wrong, but generally, as we move through our Judaic, Judaic practice and in deciding Jewish law, we typically come down with the side of the majority, and that's just a general rule, a general principle. But we still go through all this process of learning out the arguments of the minorities and they're the ones who are named. They're the ones who are actually like brought down and said, Hey, this guy had this opinion. And it's not, it's not, it's not about, Oh, the, the masses said this. And that was one of the things I was, thought was very interesting. And in what you were just talking about kind of in the Brett and Heather Weinstein's most recent dark horse podcast. And they were talking about this. They were talking about science and scientific consensus and how did, there was some article, I guess, they were quoting in the New York Times where they were talking about how, how do you spot a fake, basically. And, and like, when they drilled into the sources of this article and they read it out loud, it was like, the person is, has fringe views. And it's like, that's actually not science. Science, yes, there is consensus building in science, but if you're not challenging, <clears throat> if you're not challenging, you're not growing. It's interesting how analogous it is. Um, I mean, my my formal sort of Western education is uh, is a master's degree in history of science, um, and it's in in real time. Science is often, um, as they say today, uh, the scientific consensus. Like, for example, around global warming, or uh, depending on who you talk to about COVID or about the um, vaccine. Um, but, but over the course of time, uh, most historical ideas become um, undone or refined in such a way that, you know, somebody tugs at uh, a piece of an idea until they sort of break the consensus. And there's, there's jokes about it in history of science that we say science actually progresses funeral by funeral. 
I think that's a quote <laughs> by Thomas Kuhn, that like when, you know, when an Einstein came and he said, you know, hey, I think that there's this relativity thing and it completely changes everything we thought we knew about Newtonian mechanics. Uh, the way physics works, actually, you have to factor this bizarre set of equations about the speed of light, and you can't just ca calculate, you know, speed directly, speed, velocity, distance. It, it actually doesn't work that way. And it took uh, probably a full generation, maybe more, for physicists to actually accept it. So the scary thing at the moment, which, again, um, Brett and Heather, um, uh, Brett Weinstein and Heather Hying have been highlighting is the danger of claiming there's a consensus at, you know, in the moment about something that is a real live problem for all of us. Most scientific problems aren't giant problems for all of us in the way that Corona is, but Corona is a giant problem. And it is very scary uh, in the moment about, to me, about, uh, be, uh, you know, I'm also coming from having lived in China uh, uh, from uh, the middle of 2019 until nearly the end of 2020. That um, when you when you go to China, if you go for there for work or for business or 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 for I don't know if there'll ever be tourism there again, but you go there with a certain set of understandings. You go there because you're you're looking at certain opportunities, and certainly you can have private conversations with people. But you have an understanding that uh, certain topics, certain discussions, certain kinds of uh, activism are not welcome. The government says you're welcome to come here, but you're not welcome to do those things. So you can make a decision to abide by that or not and face the consequences. Um, that sort of closed-mindedness, it's, it, it's quite scary in seeing elements of that sort of um, heavy-handed propaganda and narrowing of discussions uh, starting to happen in the Western media and uh, not just sort of yelling at people for being out of line, but actively censoring people, shutting down their pages, shutting down their, their ability to communicate online. And since we have Corona, most of us are stuck communicating primarily online. So this is a scary moment for me um, that there are tried and true methods of which the Talmud and Jewish wisdom is one that, that, that wisdom not just knowledge, but wisdom does progress by challenging the consensus. And, you know, we have that preserved in, in reading not just the Talmud, but, you know, those, those concentric circles that you saw on the pages often tend to be chronological as well, that later layers are on the outer, outer rings, and then there's entire other books of commentary that are later and later. Um, there's a sort of appropriateness to that, that like, hey, well, now we discovered this, and now we discovered that, and we can still see that they were wise given the information that they had. Um, I think science desperately needs something like this. Um, things like peer review and stuff are broken. Um, and social media, God knows it needs something like this because um, there's, there's, there's huge discussions right now going on that are mainstream discussions about whether we can control what people say and even what they think. Uh, yeah, these, these two issues are kind of innately intertwined. Is this kind of this idea of consensus... <clears throat> And challenging consensus or being willing to step outside of consensus and free speech. And, and the reason why free speech, in my opinion, is super important, um, besides, you know, besides that it's a, kind of enshrined in, our, um, in the Bill of Rights, 
but um, the reason the reason it is is so that we can have an ever evolving consensus, so people can meet in the marketplace of ideas and uh, and discuss and learn and change and and find kind of kind of kind of find new things that make sense to them and understand the world in a better and better way. Yeah, I think the, the word Overton window has also been, um, you know, a lot more people know what that term means, that there's a set of things that are, so to speak, acceptable to talk about. And then there's things that were outside the Overton window that were just something you just couldn't even discuss. Um, and some, you know, sometimes brave or interesting or new or obnoxious politicians managed to move the Overton window. Like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez probably moved the Overton window leftward, not necessarily changing policies, but opening up the door to discuss things that had previously been off the table, especially in the direction of democratic socialism. In America, things like the standard do in Sweden and Denmark had generally been kind of off the table. Uh, and then since she came in, and move things leftward. And Trump did kind of a similar thing with uh, issues like immigration and other things, things that had been like, oh, we can't talk about that. We can't admit that. Um, or, or challenging uh, America's allies to pay their, their share was something that had never been sort of publicly discussed in that way. So you can sort of expand the discussion, but it can also have a huge negative cost to you if the if the bigger discussion or the the so to speak people in charge don't like it when you started saying that and I, I, I'm sure I could think of I'm blanking at the moment but there, there's been politicians who tried to say something and people were like nope that's outside the discussion you don't get to say that bad bad uh, I mean and, and non-politicians also and and this kind of takes us back to the tech censorship concept you know where um, you know, I know we keep we keep bringing him up in this particular episode of our podcast, but Brett Weinstein with Articles of Unity tried to launch something that was you know kind of move past the the red blue duopoly, and he got immediately banned from Facebook and Twitter for it. And you would think that those would be the kind of things that our our uh, you know the tech companies would want to see happen, but it would seem that no, they're kind of all in on kind of supporting. I think the. I mean, most people think about the Overton window, and I—at least when I think about it—it's—it's it's kind of like, like you said, the kind of like a, the box of ideas that are kind of currently in the in the, in the consciousness of people and where people are willing to focus. I, I think the bigger issue is actually um, that's kind of a implies a two-dimensional plane, and I, I think that it, you should think about it in kind of a three-dimensional space. It's not just which issues we're talking about; it's also how we're talking about the issues, and I think that that. Yeah. That's it's overly simplistic, and I think, for example, just to take the the Donald Trump immigration thing, right? So everybody was like, "Oh, well, he he shoved that notion of immigration solidly into the the national conversation." The problem is there was never any nuance about it, um, not from him and not from his detractors. So it was like immediately, as soon as he brought it up and brought it into the conversation, mind you, he did it in a terribly crude way, right? It was all of a sudden like everything had to be like an anti. It was like it was, you know, and there was no, there was no kind of, let's open this up and see what the middle ground is and figure out what's going on and why. And, and, and like, how do we discuss immigration? Uh, how do you balance, for example, having uh, open borders and uh, what you might call a welfare state or a strong a state that's strongly supportive of, of people that are downtrodden, and especially in a place where that has massive net in, inward migration? 
And how do you support all that? And none of those conversations were able to be had because it was all uh, immigration bad or immigration good. And there was no, nothing beyond that kind of six syllables. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I've seen this happen also with um, uh, global warming, um, the, so to speak, consensus and outside the consensus. The way we talk about it drives me a little nuts. I happen to be one of the people who does generally believe that human activity and, and inputs and pollution into the atmosphere is contributing to greenhouse gases and to warming the planet. However, I think it was a monumentally stupid tactical decision to make that the flagship issue for environmentalism and political environmentalism and environmental change because it's, it's problematic on a number of levels. And I also think, and I don't think I'm going out on a limb here, it may be nowhere near our, our most urgent environmental issue. You know, it could be that we could say, well, our top priority should be stopping dumping plastic into the oceans because the the, the, the volume of plastics gone into the oceans may start causing um, the entire life of the oceans to, to drastically be damaged or, or fisheries to collapse. Um, similar pollutants going into the ocean are causing acidification and are causing, um, I gather, antidepressants um, are making our fish uh, affected uh, in some, some rather bizarre and probably not healthy ways because all of the stuff we flush into the oceans. So, the other reason I question the global warming, so to speak, consensus is that um, the, the, the opposition to legislative action to support massive amounts of global warming type stuff has been blocked very often by the uh, Republican Party and also by um, like uh, uh, narratives that go on within the the, the the Christian right and stuff like that, which I think kind of boil down to a, a sort of hubris on the part of the, the people who claim global warming is the biggest problem. Um, they're sort of implying that humans control the weather, that our actions control the weather. And I know the climate and the weather are different things, but you know, human, almost all human groups since the beginning of time have had some form of religion. And one of the biggest things in almost every religion since the beginning of time is God or the gods control the weather. And I felt like this entire narrative around global warming was just picking an unnecessary fight that you weren't winning. And it's not like, you know, it was, there was any trial and error or falsification of the tactics of how to make the change you want. The change you want is for companies to pollute less is for legislation and incentives to support people polluting less. It turns out, and I know this because of my startup and the professional polling that we did and the nuanced polling that we did, I know with a high degree of confidence that an overwhelming number of conservatives support polluting less, support not putting poison into the air, not putting poison into the water, not putting poison into the ground. Conservatives could be totally on board with that. But if you keep talking about global warming, they'll oppose it. One of the reasons might be God controls the weather. Another reason might be, hey, it's not the most urgent problem. Another reason could be it's not the most cost effective way. I don't care what the reasons are. If you're liberal, if you want to stop global warming, 
tactically what you should do is never say the words global warming again never say the words climate change again and just say hey let's stop polluting ah but your assumption your base assumption i think is flawed and that is that the the people that are in political power want to solve problems i think ah, I true think well you, liberals I think that's where you go off this no, 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 no. Oh. Those are two issues. Liberals who get hysterical about it genuinely do. I know a lot of people who genuinely do want to uh, stop global warming, e.g. stopping pollution and other things like that. I have a good friend from college who's a, uh, a well-known um, professor of, I believe, uh, atmospheric science or something like that. Um, she's at Georgia Tech University, and she's actually been... Um, called before Congress repeatedly to testify about this sort of stuff. Her name is Kim Cobb, so you can look her up. She's been even on CNN a couple times interviewed. Um, so I, I have a, a lot of respect for the people who genuinely believe this, genuinely want to save the world and, you know, stop pollution and whatever. But I desperately want them to stop talking about global warming. <laughs> I just do, because I feel like you're going to fail. I want you to win. So this, I, mean, I brought it up as an example where the consensus, the so-called scientific consensus, is clearly, you might say scientifically, not effective. It's not winning. It's not doing what it needs to do. So yeah. are, they, are they willing to learn from the fact that in 30 years they haven't been able to stop the, the human pollution that they say they want to stop? Or are they... Um, so determined to be ideological, right, ideologically pure and, and that if you agree with them and if legislation passes through the Senate veto, that it has to be on their terms. Or could they pass something else that drops that language but actually stops pollution? In other words, going back to your first question, are you willing to change your mind? Are you willing to hear facts and change your mind? Yes. Uh, so actually, just kind of to riff one step further on this topic, because it always kind of irks me when I hear it, and it kind of ties very nicely to where we started with, with kind of free speech and consensus, is this statement that, quote, the science is settled. Yeah. yeah <laughs> that that, that statement drives me nuts like no other. It's like, if you knew anything about science, you'd recognize that for the most part, it is never settled. There's always room for more information, more more knowledge, more deeper understanding of what we of what goes on around us. And when you just parrot this idea that quote science is settled, you're really just showing that you're relatively unscientific and not interested at all in uh, in broadening your your understanding. And that that's going to lead me right into the next topic that we kind of wanted to talk about today, which kind of ties into all this. Is this Wall Street Journal article that that you and I kind of read? Uh, it's an op-ed. Uh, an open mind is the key to the post-COVID economy. And it starts with a, with a quote that I, I found very, very um, perfect. And it's the quote is, when the facts change, I change my mind. What do you do, sir? And uh, it, the, the article spends a little bit of time talking about kind of attribution for this quote, often to Churchill and many others, but not really matter. But it, it points out that in this world that we live in, it's actually... It's, we've come to this kind of weird place where when the facts change, we tend to double down on our opinions and try to figure out how to change the facts rather than changing our mind about something. And I, I thought it was an interesting article. Uh, we can get into the economics of it as well. Uh, but I just personally, that's what kind of spoke to me. 
And can you post the link to that article in the... Uh, I just, just posted page. it. Unfortunately, it's a Wall Street Journal article, so it's behind a paywall. Um, but... A lot of our listeners have Wall Street Journal uh, subscriptions. We hope we, we've got some. Um, anyone watching on LinkedIn right now, if you don't have a Wall Street Journal perspective, what do you uh, subscription? Then what are you doing on LinkedIn? Anyway, um, that's probably well, it's, unfair. It's a very expensive publication if you can't get a student discount, which are really quite reasonable, and other such right. discounts. So I, I, I can't blame people for not having it. And uh, it, as with all other journalistic. Um, sources its quality has degraded somewhat dramatically in recent years unfortunately well one, one of the nice quotes in it i well i forget exactly it mentions that paul samuelson recognized that economics way before the recent climate and things economics as a profession was um let's say i forget what he said susceptible to um choosing your own facts that economists were, were, were more tend more to do this than many other professions. And that's also because economics, even though it pretends to be a science, has, has huge methodological issues in actually being falsifiable. It's very hard to do a controlled experiment in economics. Marketing, maybe you can do some controlled experiments. But economics, especially macroeconomics, anything that you do has so many factors, it might as well be uh, climate change. <laughs> To take a really bad example of something that may or may not be falsifiable. Yeah, I, I thought that was very interesting. And he, he goes kind of the author of the article, which is, oh, I lose the author, Ger, Gerard Baker, um, kind of goes in to kind of explain and demonstrate that through um, the stance on deficit, deficit spending. And when it points out that when the Republicans are in the minority, they they cry foul about the national debt, and that when Republicans control the House and 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 the White House, they're they're profligate spenders. So, so it's kind right. of like you know, call, calling the Republicans hypocritical is is a wee bit of. Um, he calls the Democrats out too, by the way. Right, I was going to say, hey, look, either party, if you're calling them out for hypocrisy, as if that's some like profound statement. I see a lot of like posts like recently Ted Cruz going to like Cancun. It's like, he's such a hypocrite. And it's like, this is the easiest gotcha journalism in the world. Both parties are hypocrites all the time because they're playing a bunch of games that, that necessitate using rhetoric in one direction and then doing policies in another direction. And they have a hierarchy of priorities that aren't the same as the hierarchy that they present to the world. So they're going to be hypocrites constantly. And I felt like that wasn't so interesting. But the bigger thing that was interesting was like, well, we just spent almost every country in the world spent, you know, a, a massive amount of deficit spending in um, coronavirus related expenses, whether you call it a stimulus or massive unemployment benefits or um, I gather a lot of Europe, people are getting like four or five or 7,000 euros a month to just keep not working while coronavirus continues. And it's like, that's a lot of money. That's like almost eight, nine, ten thousand $10,000 a month to not work. Well, I'm not sure I would want to work uh, if I was making 10,000 euros a month um, for sitting at home doing nothing. But that money, it, it, it doesn't come from thin air. 
Uh, and as far as I know, there's no government on earth that's spending money that's like, quote, real money out of its treasury without some sort of deficit spending to cover this coronavirus crisis. Um, and my comparison when I talked to you earlier, Shimon, was that, you know, hey, this is what countries do in war very often as well. Like in World War II, I believe America's deficit spending was like the amount of money America was spending in 1944 and 45 was was more than the entire United States um, gross domestic product um, before the war. So deficit spending in a crisis is not necessarily new, but these circumstances are very different. The article was kind of questioning when, when is the, the bill going to come due and also asking some other questions about it. What what happens to our monetary supply? Does it mean we're going to have massive inflation? Like you can't just keep printing money. Uh, in other words, adding to the total amount of money in the world and expect it to keep the same value. Um, now, the math is not exactly one-to-one. -one. There's ways to create value and to expand the world economy. But I, I want to keep it a very simple understanding that like if there's a hundred million dollars in the world and you just and nothing else changes and you print another 10 million dollars you should have decreased the value of the dollar it should have diluted the same way as if you just add water to a uh uh to your orange juice it's now diluted you didn't add to the amount of orange juice you just have a so, bigger bottle so People who are, you know, students of, of recent history, specifically the great financial crisis, which is another topic that you and I have spent hours and hours discussing and debating over the years, uh, would notice that a very similar kind of phenomena happened in, you know, 2009 through, I mean, never really stopped. But, uh, you know, they started to kind of taper off the, the spending in 2014, uh, the, the quantitative easing, et cetera. And, and, and there was a big scare about inflation back then, and, and it never occurred. It never they're materializing prices. And what people don't necessarily realize or think about is that there are multiple areas and avenues where inflation can kind of rear its head. One is in prices with, you know, personal consumption expenditures piece is measured by the PCE index or the CPI index, uh, which are formerly government published statistics, which basically seek to take kind of an average basket of goods that an average person consumes and kind of track its prices over time. But where you do have massive inflation um, is, uh, is in, for example, the number of billionaires. So there's this concept of income inequality that's, that's gotten a lot of press in, uh, in, in the post-GFC era. And I would argue that on some level, that's, uh, that's sort of just inflationary pressure, essentially. Because what happens is, like, it's got to go somewhere, as you kind of point out, right? You gave you give this example of $100 million in a, in a system and you add $10 million, so, so that, like, all else being equal, you have to kind of, kind of, it's a closed system, right? It's, it's got to bleed out. It's got to, it's got to, it's got to show up somewhere in that equation. Yeah, and the so, dilution has to show up somewhere and it's invisible to most people who, you know, most people think that a dollar is still a dollar, but those... Uh, of us who've who've ducked our head, you know, under the the curtain and looked into the room where the big finance happened, have realized that there has been a lot of dilution in net uh, around the world. Right. So, but the thing is that prices have remained relatively stable for the average person. And so, the, what in a normal, an old school economic thinking about inflation, 
Um, and like you, you quoted this kind of Samuelson quote from this article where it talks about how, you know, how it's kind of your, you, you kind of cherry picking facts, et cetera. But you would think that if, you know, supply is, if in a world where supply is somewhat constrained and demand is somewhat, is, 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 is dependent on, on cash, basically, then that's what, that's what causes inflation, right? There's only so many cars or houses or whatever available that people can buy. And so therefore, the more money you put in people's pockets, the more they're going to want to buy things, the more that pushes up the demand for things. And if supply remains fixed, you get price inflation. Right, right. And there's also related dynamics about how much debt people are allowed to get into, which in finance terms, we call how leveraged you're allowed to be. Um, houses would cost a lot less if, let's just say, every mortgage required a 30 or 50 percent down payment in America. Um, in general, in a what? Go ahead. Apologies. No, that, but that's that is the inflation, right? So, like you said, like they they dumped a tremendous amount of liquidity into the the United States economy by printing it, and it's got to go somewhere. It it needs kind of an escape hatch, and so that escape hatch, my argument, my contention is, um, is that it, that escape hatch is in asset prices, and since the the, the super wealthy own a lot of assets, right? They've experienced most benefits of the inflation. The good news for everybody in the economy, right, is that for, for in throughout most areas of, of, of spending, um, we haven't seen massive price inflation, right? The bad news right. is it doesn't feel great to be kind of stuck at the bottom or somewhere in the middle working really hard and seeing all these other people um, have lots and lots of, you know, excess cash flow. And, and because right. that that come from assets, right? And and there is just a cut. You know, there's a couple areas where there has been vast rises in prices, uh, disproportionate to the rest of the economy. One of them is housing in most of, uh, actually most of the world, um, not just America. Um, the cost of uh, buying buying a house, buying an apartment has gone up uh, pretty dramatically. And even in places where it had dropped temporarily because of massive failures of the economy like Detroit or Cleveland or whatever, even those places have, uh, have rebounded significantly. But um, even in places like Colombia or Thailand, I mean, there's, there's, there's real estate gold rushes going on because the, you know, the amount of money that was used to purchase those houses, sometimes people have owned them for, for, for decades or generations. Like in Israel, there's a huge sort of number of people from, uh, the 1980s when there was hyperinflation in Israel. So people who happened to be at the stage of life that they could buy a house or pay off their mortgage, um, a whole number of people bought houses or bought a number of houses in 1984 when you could literally buy a house for the equivalent of ten dollars or $15,000. And now there's, you know, those houses on paper and if they decide to sell them are worth, you know, $2 million each for really just an ordinary crappy house in the middle of Israel. So housing has gone up and um, um, college tuition in America has gone up uh, way out of proportion to inflation. And healthcare? So if it goes into inflation, then there has been inflation. It's been balanced a little bit by the declining cost of like electronics and other consumer goods because of this massive scaling up of like manufacturing in China and stuff and better and better supply chains. But uh, I think that if you look at a constant index, like a PPP, 
um, we've seen a stagnation of the purchasing power of most people in the middle class of the West, a massive increase in the PPP, the purchasing power parity of, you know, billionaires, and um, a rise actually in the middle classes in China, India, Thailand, the Philippines, Colombia, Vietnam. A lot of countries in the so-called third world have seen a massive rise in quality of life, standard of life, uh, access to the middle class, access to capital. So on a global level, I, I feel like there's a, a lot of asterisks to saying that inequality is rising. But in, a, in real terms, inside Western countries, there's no question that there's a, a, a much bigger uh, inequality gap than there's been in probably since the Rockefeller era 100 years ago. Sorry, can you repeat the last one? I got a little distracted. Oh, I, I said there's probably more inequality in inside Western countries than there has been since like the robber baron era of like 120 years ago. So, I mean, uh, and this is going to take us a little different direction, but I guess we already kind of went down that road of inequality. To me, I, I wonder as to why inequality is a problem. I, this obsession with, with income inequality and wealth inequality is, is, is a little odd to me because I, I, I'm more obsessed with how do you raise the bottom rather than what's the gap between the bottom and the top. And like... Sure. It, once we've kind of brought up the whole bottom, like you can, you, you I don't think you can, like, because when you start to talk about the gap between the top and the bottom, that leads you down this road of well, the way to fix that is kind of redistributionary, right? And you're you're not you're not going to fix any problems by slicing the pie differently. Like we we need to figure out how to grow the pie, and it's not a fixed size pie. I don't believe. And, and the world, as we've seen it kind of over and over and over again, shows us that it's not a fixed pie. The pie grows. And so I personally am way more interested in hearing about how do we help the people that are at the bottom or, or just barely off of the bottom and in the middle. Um, and I think that, that the obsession with the gap between the top and the bottom is really just more political pandering, weaponization. Ah. Well, that, that, that's the first part of what I said. Maybe we're uh, unable to hear that part. But globally, inequality has actually arguably decreased quite a bit in the last 30, 40 years because we've, we've seen a massive creation of a middle class in China, India, Vietnam, Colombia, Thailand, the Philippines, Brazil. Um, literally billions of people have moved from uh, third world poverty, unimaginable poverty into effectively the world middle class with a purchasing power that's not that different from a lot of the Western, uh, what they call it, the precariat um, instead of the proletariat, the, all the people who live paycheck to paycheck inside Western countries. And what I said was re relative inequality within Western countries has increased. And the bottom the bottom is also a relative thing. If you have enough to improve your life and not slip further and further into debt, even if that bar is quite low, or I should say, it, I, I think it's better when the bar is quite low. Like in China, what I saw is that people who make uh, 
you know, some absurdly low number, I, I, I think, you know, a monthly wage on the order of like $200 or less. But because the um, availability of goods and services and uh, very inexpensive public transportation and access to your, your job without a terrible commute and affordable housing and affordable, you know, goods and services and food and healthcare, you can live on $200 a month there. So to me, it's that line that matters more than anything. If that line is fairly low, then it's not that hard to get people above it. Whereas because of the bottleneck on things like housing in a lot of Western countries, that bar is very high. And you know, even people who are working really hard have an incredibly hard time staying above water, not because they're uh, putting too much avocado on their toast, but because housing is too expensive and their student loans are crippling um, or similar dynamics. Yeah. And ah, so, but wait. But, no, go ahead. No, I just thought another point, but I want to hear it. Well, the, the, the really interesting thing about inequality to me, like you said, there's more billionaires today than there were. And arguably in the West, there's more people who've slipped under that line than there were, let's say, before the 2008 crash. Um, just to go all the way back for a second, what are really, really rich people historically? Before the last hundred years, most really, really rich people were nobility were upper class, were hereditary, were, uh, there was all these sort of signals that said that somebody Let had become, land ownership. Sometimes it was land ownership. Sometimes it was estate ownership. Sometimes it was, uh, you know, being knighted by the queen and then getting, you know, the privileges. But, but the point is. Well, it's like that knighthood always came with, or those nobility those titles always came with lands. Lands, or maybe and, maybe not always, but like revenues that come from the land, basically. A hundred percent. And sometimes it was even a grant of a colonial, like Lord Baltimore was an English lord and he got a charter from the Queen of England to basically own Maryland. Not that either the Queen of England could give it to him or whatever, but that's how it happened. So the aristocracy got this amazing privilege to own land and all the people who worked on it had this, you know, serfdom relationship fealty to them. But the, the lords also had a responsibility to those people. The lords were responsible for um, managing, so to speak, the finances and the, 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 the production to make sure that their, their, their farmers, their tenant farmers, their serfs, were whatever you want to call it, were, were well fed and were, were protected from bandits. I mean, a, a lord who couldn't protect his... So, so my point is more that there used to be a more of an emphasis on the responsibilities but of the wealthy, not just the privileges. Is it is it your contention that the old system of feudalism did a better job at taking care of the interests of the poor than the modern system of capitalism? No. However... Um, the issue that I'm having with the last 30, 40 years of capitalism is that on the one hand, it did address arguably better than ever before in history, getting people out of that bottom into something like a middle, something like a stable middle. 
And that happened, global capitalism happened a lot of different ways. Sometimes it was extremely protectionist like China. Sometimes it was extremely free market like a Thailand or an Argentina or a Russia. Um, but at the end of the day, an awful lot of people got raised up out of poverty. And I'm not going to say that any one philosophy deserves it, but it certainly happened in the context of a massive integration of the world into um a free, you know, into a market system. I'm not going to say free because it's not like China was ever free in that. And China's probably the biggest uh, manufacturer in the world. So we can't say we all live in a free market. We're all wearing clothes not made in a free market. But it, it, it's something that resembles it enough. So I'll give some credit there. However, they lied to people in the West about saying sort of this non-nuanced statement that like globalization is good, free markets are good, shareholder value being the most important way to value companies is good. And there were downsides to that. There were winners and losers. The, the, the manufacturing that had driven the prosperity of the Western middle class disappeared. And, and the, the rich in the West don't have the sense of responsibility they don't own the lands. Most people own their own suburban tracts and whatever. It's not like uh, Jeff Bezos has a giant feudal estate where, you know, 40,000 people live outside of Seattle. That's not how it works anymore. Well, but he does have 1.3 million employees. It's true. And he does. He, I, I, would, I would bet you that if you sat down with Jeff Bezos... And you asked him, I think that his employees' welfare and well-being would rank relatively high on his list of priorities. I would certainly hope so. I mean, there have certainly been horror stories about the way people who work in his warehouses have been treated. Yeah, there are horror stories. There are horror stories everywhere. But somebody at the top, like a Jeff Bezos, is not necessarily exposed to what's going on at the bottom uh, to that one warehouse worker and some, you know, there's, there's often time. I'm not, I'm not making excuses for the system or for, for Amazon or the way they treat their employees or, or for Jeff Bezos in general. But I'm saying that to kind of take your corollary, most people who are, uh, who are billionaires today are billionaires because they built something, and they built something that added value in the world, and then they sold either, either they still own it, and like in the case of like the Mars family, right. Who, who owns kind of Mars candy privately or still own it like the Walton family having built Walmart and still are a large shareholder uh, of that company, but that's a public company and they sold a huge portion off to generate greater wealth. Or in the case of like a Jeff Bezos, who who's a minority shareholder technically, uh, although he ha he's the largest shareholder, he just doesn't own an outright kind of majority of the, of the stock. And so, those, all of those people, kind of more to the point, though, is they they do employ people. They do have kind of responsibilities, and I think they do view it as their responsibility to take care of uh, those below them. Not all. Look, some there are. There, I'm not going to tell you there aren't rich assholes out there. I'm sure there are. Probably met, well, yeah, probably met a couple. I'm, but I mean, there's there's a. I think there's a. Um, there's a name for the psychological dynamic of sort of availability. The, the, the billionaires whose names we know are probably disproportionately the ones who are self-made, are the ones who have publicly made uh, their own companies happen. Um, so we know Jeff Bezos and Mark Zuckerberg and um, Larry Page so, and, and 
it, it's and, not and just an availability world. thing. It's it's actually objective reality. Uh, Forbes does this every year. They run a list. They do the Forbes 400. They they, they measure the the most wealthy no, people and and where do they get their wealth from? And the majority, the vast majority of wealth is actually is actually self generated and first generation. I know, but 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 my ask. My asterisk on that is that a lot of the old money and a lot of the people who come out of the Goldman Sachs world and stuff like that are smart enough, like their, their, their whole, especially the old school money from like the uh, Park Avenue, Upper East Side, they disguise the degree of their wealth. And sometimes they are just as wealthy or wealthier than the people on that list, but they make it look like they don't have that. They, 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 they have all these foundations and layers and... Um, and shell companies, and they, they, they keep their direct ownership sort of out of the public eye. The other element of that is like the money laundering, which for, for, for things like drug cartels, arguably as much as 15% of the um, world economy is, is sort of black money, people who have made their money illegally. Um, my bigger point is, is more that there's no formal sort of cultural way that super rich people have any real responsibility for um, for the world. Like the, collectively, the nobility of England or France or Germany or or Poland, Lithuania had responsibility actually for all the people. And even if Jeff Bezos is responsible for all of his employees, he's certainly not responsible for all of his customers and their well-being and making sure oh. they're not ripped. Okay, so so that brings me back to the question I asked you at the beginning of the first riff, and that is, is it your contention that that system was better and produced better outcomes, or are you <laughs> merely, or are you merely talking to um, some kind of cultural dynamic that you would wish existed in today's world, even though you recognize that this system, at least in the context that it exists, has empirically produce better outcomes. I, I don't like to do a global statement like has produced better outcomes. It certainly produced some on better average. outcomes. On, on average. Yeah. Obviously there's uh, on more average. like we don't have surfs. But, but, we don't we, we don't have a lot of serfs anymore in this world, right? There's not a no, lot no, of people no, that sure, are owned yeah. and forced to labor seven days a week. There are some. There are some, there but I would some, say as a percentage of global population it's much diminished. Right. It's, 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 it's different. Um, but I don't do the, uh, accounting based on a short a span time as, you know, 20 years. The question is where are we heading and how stable is this system? I will say for feudalism that it was stable over the course of hundreds of years. Um, and I don't think our system is stable. I think our system is, is, is in danger of massively cracking right now, not necessarily because of the specifics of how the income is distributed, but because of the gap between the story that's told about what's happening and what's actually happening. I think that that gap is making people crazy. Uh, we've talked about this before that um, in the 2008 crash, there was a, a sort of distribution of a lot of wealth upward uh, in the sort of massive settlements and rearrangements of that crash. And by some measures, most ordinary people who don't do anything with fancy finance may have lost up to a third of their purchasing power uh, because of the 2008 crash. Well, where did that money go? 
that goes back to what Eric Weinstein used to say about people on Wall Street. It's like whenever people on Wall Street would come to him and say, wow, that's a beautiful thing. It was like, wow, that's a way that somebody on Wall Street, some financial set of entities has figured out a way to uh, carve out a chunk of the money of the rest of the world and redirect it to themselves without adding value and without people noticing. Um, I mean, when I worked for Goldman Sachs, look, I can't speak to every specific deal that they were doing, but I know that there were over a hundred sort of partners and just the partners, every single partner received a bonus, not salary, but just their bonus at the end of the year was over a hundred million dollars. So a million dollars on each on average. No, a hundred million dollars minimum each partner bonus. I'm, I'm very skeptical of that statistic, Matthew. Their, their bonuses were out of this world. And when Goldman Sachs- That's like a trillion years, dollars, Matthew. Not a trillion. It was a hundred million times- about a hundred times a hundred million. It's 10,000 million. It's 10 billion. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, it was 10 billion. I'm pretty sure that was right. Um, none of them had to pay back their bonuses a couple because when you look at the, the the risks that an investment bank takes and the way they you know get their fees and the way they get their chunks of money they're sort of taking their piece of a deal that might take 30 years to mature and if that deal eventually blows up which a lot of the financing and the you know um cdos and all of the, 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 the things that blew up in the 2008 crash, all of those fake uh, bundled mortgages and stuff like that, that had these absurd high liquidity values that we, we talked about earlier about where did all that printed money go. They took a huge chunk of that future money that didn't really quite exist and the individuals didn't pay it back. The bank itself, Goldman Sachs and the other big banks, they had to pay some fines, but the individuals walked away with hundreds of millions of dollars from what was basically a fraud or a scam on the scale of trillions of dollars. It was a trillions of dollars scam, the subprime crisis. And since 2008, the rest of the world has been told, look, they paid a fine. They're a little more responsible now. You can let them go back to being Wall Street. But most of the rest of us have never quite caught up since 2008. And the fact that we haven't been told that full story and told that story honestly, and not enough bankers went to jail, all the people who were involved in those frauds, they would claim, oh, well, I couldn't understand the 200 page document that described the, the subprime mortgage bundled thing that Goldman sold to Deutsche Bank, which sold to pension funds, which sold to, you know, th there was so many layers of fraud. Only a few people actually went to jail for it. Only a few people had to give their money back. But most of the people involved in it got their bonuses, kept their bonuses. Well, okay, um, so... So the kind of reckoning that you're asking for, I, know, I, 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 I hear, I hear what you're saying, but I think that once again, I think there's a, there's a, there's a problem of focus here and, mm -hmm. and this is nuanced. So look, I'm not, please, please just don't get me wrong here. I'm not, I'm not, not sympathetic. I'm extremely sympathetic to people that lost everything in the great financial crisis. I think that was wrong. And I think the government handled it wrong on the out, on the way out. 
right? Um, and printed huge money, which I know you also agree with. And they printed a huge amount of money that they probably shouldn't have. And they were, and we discussed this in an earlier episode, I think, when we we're talking about GameStop, um, how the government was in a really bad situation. And I'm, I'm very grateful that I wasn't a decision maker at that point in time because their choices were to kind of allow, allow the system to fail, right? And screw everybody, right? Or rescue the system on some level and move, move things forward. The problem is that knowledge and power and wealth and, and kind of abilities and resources are not equally distributed through society, right? And they never will be. Um, and therefore, you know, lots and lots of people took the wrong lessons from what they saw going on around them um, and didn't, didn't act in ways that would have maximized their own self-interest at the time. And I'm not blaming them. Let's not, let's be hundred percent clear. I'm not blaming those people, but you know, back to the same kind of, so, so the government kind of stepped in and made that decision um, that that was going to be the way forward. And I, I'll tell you that I think, I think, that as much as it was a bad decision and they could have done things better, um, letting all the financial institutions fail would have been much, much worse. Like orders of magnitude worse. And that's what they were faced with. They were faced with this, like they can't do the personal accounting for every single person because there's too many of them. And I agree with you that there should have been more, there should be, there should be a lot of accountability in this, but chasing all that down is, is a, is a monumental task. But on the flip side, this is something most people aren't aware of and don't even think about. The the banks paid tens of billions, if not hundreds of billions of dollars in fines and fees to the government, which was then supposed to go to most of that money was supposed to go back to the individuals who got screwed. But it all got lost somewhere in the government. So Bank of America, for example, lost somewhere. Yeah, it lost Some somewhere. people. Well, okay. So this well, hold on a second. No, let me finish. Let me finish what I'm saying though, because it's important. Because uh, I think that this is so. Bank of America, for example, or or J.P. Morgan, right? Bank of America, I think, bought Countrywide Financial. Okay, they bought it because uh, Paulson, the Treasury Secretary, asked them to, right? And so they took over Countrywide Financial, which was one of the most toxic areas of mortgage fraud, right? And then Bank of America was immediately liable for all the wrongdoing that Countrywide Financial did. True. And J.P. Morgan had the same thing with WAMU, right? And so these, the, the banks that, that, that were fiscally responsible going into the crisis, relatively, okay, relatively fiscally responsible, I'm not going to give them a, a, a blank, a, a pass on that, ended up paying billions and billions of dollars, and the shareholders of those banks ended up paying billions and billions of dollars for wrongdoing of other institutions because they bought the liabilities. And that was the government's way of making, quote, Wall Street pay. And it was, a, it was a bad idea. It was a bad way to go about doing it. But that's what they did. I mean, when I was, I, I the fund that I, that I where, the, the investment funds that I manage, I've been very bullish on banks for a decade. And we were shareholders. We started buying in 2012, 13, 14, and watching the, the, the banks have to pay out these tens of billions of dollars of, of, of liabilities for of, of settlements to the government for liabilities that they bought, not be, not because they wanted to, like, like they were half coerced by the government to buy these assets, which were these institutions that were failing. And then they got slapped with fines for buying. Them. And that's True, absurd. Look, and and that doesn't fix, that doesn't fix the problem at the bottom. And you're right. It might've been better. 
had the government decided that we're going to go look case by case, line by line, and do mass amounts of investigations into thousands and thousands of individuals that were involved in the mortgage, you know, scam, fraud, whatever you want to call it, right? That might have been a better way to go. We didn't go that way. And it's, it's for all intents and purposes, too late now because we have a statute of limitations that's constitutionally imposed. Right. But, but I, I still feel like I think you're under, it boils down to a slightly different question, which is mm-hmm. the stability of society is partly dependent on a sense of fairness. Agreed. Like that, that, that when there was aristocrats and feudal estates and whatever, there was a perception that this was the natural order that this made sense somehow, that the king is wealthy because he's the king and because he descends from a divinely uh, appointed, uh, you know, emperor or king or whatever. Um, There's a sense that the rich people deserve to be rich and they also do things that demonstrate that they're generous or that they're um, majestic or that they're um, violent and therefore they they protect you and they, they merit their wealth their relative wealth. And um, I was thrown off when you brought up like, well, you know, a lot of the billionaires deserve it. And some of them do, and some of them really don't. And it's not just the billionaires, it's the 10 million and 100 millionaires, all the people who work in finance. I think there's a, a widespread perception that some people deserve their money and some people really don't. And if I were just, you know, working as a mid-level clerk at my local, you know, chain restaurant. And I just started, you know, setting aside a third of the money that came in the door and just pocketing it. That's a crime. That's embezzlement. I should go to jail. But when banks do this, when there's a big crisis, and rather than making sure all the people who got screwed out of their home loans got their money back, the bankers just sort of kept you know, kept a bigger chunk than was fair for themselves. And they paid some fines and they paid off some of those liabilities. But anyone who's been in finance knows that those are usually what they call settlements, which is like, hey, I'll give you 20% of what we nominally owe you because you're not going to see any bigger amount. Good luck going to court with it. Here's your check. You know, that's what happens very often. So Um, so, I I want to stick with the point that you were making about deservedness of and fairness, because I think that's yeah. more interesting. To me, that's more interesting than litigating kind of the aftermath of the of the financial crisis. And that's right. right. My, my big my whole point about the financial crisis is only that enough unfair stuff happened that a lot of people got enriched. And most ordinary people who weren't involved in finance actually did lose, both because as taxpayers, they bailed it out and because they lost purchasing power. And so there's this widespread sense of A, unfairness, and B, kind of gaslighting, a resentment that the elites are telling them everything is fine, you're fine, don't pay any attention to what's going on here, life went back to normal. I think it's a huge reason that Trump got elected, as Trump said to them, you know what, you have a right to be angry, those elites really are screwing you. Wall Street is screwing you and the, the, the universities are screwing you and the people with pointy hats and, the you know, you're getting screwed. And he was telling the truth. So a couple of things, uh, because I really I do want to sidestep to the, to the fairness and and uh, kind of turn back towards the fairness thing. But I will point out that while I 100 percent agree with you that people got screwed in the great financial crisis, this this taxpayer on the hook for a bailout. I'm I'm pretty sure that all those bailouts were repaid with interest. Uh, I've looked it up a number of times. There's a number of ways of looking at it. 
but but the federal no. government the federal government came out ahead massively got paid back but the, the taxpayers paid a huge amount in that how in so the how so um, it wasn't just banks that got bailed out. There was a, there was a huge wave of collapses across uh, in many industries. I mean, the government seized, for example, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac um, as a rescue fund, and so while they were they while they had um, federal guarantees before the Great Financial Crisis, which was a big part of the whole kind of problem that happened, yeah, right? But since two thousand and nine, when the government seized Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and put them into conservatorship. The government has been sweeping all of their profits, which is like, like I just read yesterday, Fannie Mae's 2020 income, net income was $12 billion. So multiply $12 million by 10 years, that's $120 billion that the federal government took. Okay. And that was, that was all kind of comeuppance for the great financial crisis. But I really, I, so, so I think that if you look net net and the aggregate, in the aggregate, the taxpayers did not actually quote quote unquote, bail anybody out and actually pay, like they didn't go and levy extra taxes on your random person, right? Because of what happened to the great financial crisis, it didn't happen. So, and it didn't, it, it did grow the deficit to some extent, but for the most part, most of those monies were paid back. They were, I'll, I'll agree with you wholeheartedly that they were misappropriated and misspent and not properly directed to where they should have gone. But on the aggregate level, I don't think that that's that's one hundred percent accurate. Although I could be wrong, I'm open to seeing other facts well, and, and being interpreted. But but I want to get sorry, I apologize. I want to get yeah. to the point of fairness and unfairness because you said something about people deserve and people don't deserve. And the question I have, the really important question is, how do you determine deserve doesn't deserve fit in in the context of wealth? So I, I my contention was if if I didn't say that they deserve it, but to the extent you could extrapolate my words to mean that that I feel that billionaires are self-made and thereby quote deserve it, it's not deserve, it's earn. I mean, the there is a the they created something of value and were able to sell that. Now you can come afterwards and question whether that thing was of value or not. But most people who are, I mean, I just looked it up very quickly while we were talking, uh, and this obviously needs more more depth, but there's an article here of CNBC from 2019 that says 68% of the world's richest people are first-generation wealth. They made it themselves. Now, deserve is a different question, right? I mean, that's like deserve implies a moral judgment, right? And so a moral judgment, everybody has to make their own moral judgments about things. Uh, but I don't think it's in my, I don't think I have the right to make that judgment call about whether somebody else deserves something. I know he has it. And as long as he didn't get it by ill-gotten means, meaning literally breaking laws or extorting people or stealing it. I mean, you went straight from an example about somebody who steals 30% of the till from a restaurant to, to something that's a lot, that's not a corollary. I mean, and, and I think that, and I, I well, would wrap us back to free speech. Occasionally it is. Like you remember oh. when Wells Fargo got caught creating a whole bu bunch of fake accounts with fees or not fake accounts. A whole bunch of extra accounts that had a lot of fees with for, for millions of their own customers. They were literally stealing from their own customers. It was just as bad as as the the guy embezzling from a restaurant. It was just as bad, except that they could disguise it as being these official bank things. And people suddenly found they had five accounts 
eight accounts. They couldn't close them and they were being charged fees for them. I mean, Wells Fargo happened to get caught. But I mean, I know from from uh, a friend of mine used to work at AT Not to condone the behavior, not to condone the behavior, but they did subsequently return all those fees and funds to every account that ever got overcharged for an unopened, for an account that wasn't supposed to be opened, to my knowledge, according to what I've read. I imagine there are. And how many of them went to jail? Like the guy embezzling from the, the restaurant would have gone to jail. Again, there's a double standard. And. And I think it's, it's it's much worse when you do a crime where you know that at least on the surface appearance, what you're doing is uh, is has the full power of the law to collect it. I had another friend who worked at AT&T and they had actually done an internal study to see how many people checked their bill. This is when bills were still itemized and you got charged for every call. They were routinely overcharging people. They had done a study that 90, that 80% of people don't even check their bill. Of the 20% that checked their bill, only 5% followed up. And of those, only a quarter made it past the first or second sort of annoying automated phone screen to get to a person and say, hey, I didn't make these calls. You're charging me too much money. So AT&T was blatantly stealing from people. And as far as I know, they never got caught for that. You know, they cleaned it up by the time an audit showed up. But um, my friend had Are you suggesting the that they did a study and said this, we can do this, and therefore they in, in they intentionally went about and did that? Or that was just something that when they caught it later on and figured out that they were doing, they were massively overcharging? Meaning there's a, there's a huge difference between those two positions. My friend claimed that they did it deliberately. So if they did it deliberately, if they did it deliberately, and this is just a matter of law, right, then it's a fraud, right? They intentionally... But they intentionally overcharged somebody and figured they wouldn't get caught versus this happened a lot and they didn't have great internal controls, which, which is, which is a different, which is also not great, but which is a different reality. My friend who had worked there said that they did it deliberately. And as far as I know, they never got caught for it. That was in the late nineties. Um, look, I'm not saying that, um, every billionaire is doing fraud. I think an awful lot of them are making their money totally legitimately, whether the degree of reward for the level of value that they bring is, is in line. That's like you said, that's a more, that's a more general moral question, but when enough of like, so in Israel, um, a small number of people um, make a huge amount of money because they control um, certain imports of certain kinds of goods and they prevent anyone else from importing. So they prevent there from being a free market. They often do this because they have very close relationships with certain politicians. So you can't get a Macintosh computer here without paying this sort of King's bounty. It's like more than double what it is in America. Actually, no, uh, Elon Musk just uh, tweeted about this. I don't know if you saw this. Tesla's cost um, almost triple what they cost in the States if you buy a new Tesla in Israel. <laughs> so Elon Musk published in a tweet, this is how much the taxes are. This is how much it costs to ship it to Israel. So whoever's claiming to be uh, the dealer there and claiming that it has to be that expensive just because of taxes, there's very little maintenance on a Tesla. They're not delivering any value. This is bullshit. So, so these are thefts on the scale, on a, on a big enough scale. I mean, that means that every single Tesla that was sold, the dealer here was making a profit, 
a sort of unjustified profit, according to Elon Musk, on the order of like $75,000 or $80,000. And part of that is because they have a, they have a government-protected contract to be the sole person who's allowed to import Teslas into Israel. Like Elon Musk can change right. that by saying, hey, I'm Tesla. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to now allow five dealers in Israel. I'm going to license to five dealers. So, so one of two things. I'm, I'm Elon speaking can't of, change I speak, that by himself. I speak the government. Right. So to the, ex- the to the extent that the government won't let anybody else in, this is this 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 takes you back to my basic bias, right? And I was in a room on to bring it back full circle to Clubhouse. I was in a room in Clubhouse last night where they were talking about this. Where they're talking specifically about billionaires and that that billionaires control the the corporations and the billionaires control the government. And my contention back to that is always the same. It's the reason why people are, are vying to control the government is because the government controls a big pot of money. If you took away that extra, those externalities and you allowed markets to function, those things would, would work their way out of the market. Now, it may cause other problems, right? But those issues would work themselves out of society. Those government entrenched because when the government gets involved, they're not adding any value in that process. Now, governments may add value in other processes, but in that specific process of the Tesla or, um, you know, grain subsidies or any of the other big, fat, porky things that governments engage in where all that money kind of gets lost along the way, right, that they're, they're just net dragging on, on everybody. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think we're getting at the same. Uh, to me, that's a distraction because sometimes it's government dynamics and sometimes it's private corporation dynamics. There's certainly corporations that create barriers to entry, not through the, the means of the government, but through other means like buying up competition, uh, monopoly dynamics. Um, there, there, there's the, the bigger point or the higher level point is the fairness implicit in how that's going to work itself out. Um I don't necessarily care whether it's a government that regulates to make it fairer, um, which works really well in, in, in certain contexts, or whether it's the free market that itself regulates. Like the vast majority of stock trading, actual Wall Street stock trading, is incredibly well regulated, not on the government level but on the level of almost all the major banks, brokerages, and uh, major traders, there's a huge amount of, of self-disclosure and of, of um, protections against insider trading, not because they're all altruistic saints, but because they know that there's another hundred large players out there that they want to make sure are also accountable. So because they don't trust each other, that market, the stock market, has worked itself out in such a way that there's a tremendous amount of regulation that's not government regulation. So, so I, it, there, there needs to be, and, you know, it goes back to contract enforcement, other thing. But like, if you trust that it's a fair system, then you feel like you, that, that merit has a chance of rising up. 
Whereas when it's an unfair system, like importing to Israel, there's this widespread perception that it's a deeply unfair thing. Some people are rich, enriching themselves at the, the expense of others and that you can't do anything about it. And that's what leads to this like building up of tension that can destroy all the markets. You know, when you have wars, they literally destroy capital as well as destroy people. Lots of people, lots of property, lots of capital gets destroyed because that regulation got so out of whack that people looked for solutions in things like militarism, nationalism, fascism, communism. That's what I don't, I don't want to see us going down that road. And I see us going down that road now because we're losing faith in the stories that we're being told. Oh, I agree. And I think that the solution is um, back to, to kind of bring us full circle, more free speech, more conversation, more disagreement and more engagement, because the those that have the power are not interested in sharing it for the most part. And I, I, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, so I don't believe that there's some kind of evil cabal that's uh, that's that's manipulating all this. I think it all comes back to uh, we talked about this a couple number of times. It's it all comes back to moral hazards and perverse incentives, right? So, and, and yes. we need to, we yeah. need to, as, as people kind of come back to this and understand, you know, understand, um, understand these things and, and mobilize uh, towards action, but not in the way that we're being pushed to by, media by politics by you know this teamness but more by the fact that we're all citizens and we all we all care and we, if we sit down and talk through issues we can come up with um even if we you and i may disagree about the origins of the problems and or uh the specific policy prescriptions i'm pretty sure that if we sat down we can get 80 percent of the way there to fixing some of the major problems of society um, and if we get, you know, a hundred, couple hundred thousand, couple million more people to, along with us to have real conversations and really kind of try to work towards making things better, not worse, then we can we can fix all of these things. Yeah, and I wonder how much like being outside of the consensus, and I think you and I are outside of the consensus in terms of the way we narrate some of those big sort of global events. I wonder whether, you know, if we ever had enough followers to get noticed, like, you know, like the intellectual dark web people, would we get, you know, censored and deplatformed the way they are? I, I worry about, like, even for me to say what I said about global warming earlier, which I can't imagine it's actually a controversial statement to worry that other things might destroy the environment before global warming gets to us. That doesn't seem like such a a dangerous statement, but I feel like that sort of um, polarizing extreme dynamic that's going on says, if you say anything at all to question the, the science, the science is settled. The consensus is global warming is our biggest threat. Well, I must be a Republican then because I said that, you know, and it's the same thing going on with the vaccines. It's like, if you say, Hey, I really would like to see the entire, um, formula of the Pfizer vaccine, which uh, there's a political party running in Israel saying, we're not saying no to the vaccine. We're saying we want full disclosure because you're basically making our entire population a guinea pig. We'd really like to see the data. And it's, 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 it's a party with a doctor at the head of it called Rafa or Rafa. 
and they actually got their um, official symbol to be in the you know in the election. You have like a a symbol that goes on your little uh, note card that you vote with. They got that almost the same day that their their Facebook page, which had forty thousand followers, got kicked off of Facebook at the behest of the Israeli government, I gather. And the the doctor, who's the head of the party, um, even though he's a well-respected doctor who's famous enough to lead a political party, he got his medical license revoked by the Ministry of Health here. <laughs> so it's like, he's not even saying don't take the vaccine. He's just saying, hey, I want to know more about it. And I think we have the right to know more about it. So I'm I'm scared right now about how this, you know, what, what you and I say sounds so reasonable to us that like, hey, let's have a conversation with everything on the table and the good ideas will sort themselves out and let's have a free market where the good products will sort themselves out as long as there's reasonable protections against, you know, contract violation and fraud and stuff like that. And I wouldn't think these are radical opinions, but I'm starting to feel like they are. Well, keep having them. I'm going to, I'll, I'll end with a, a quote from uh, from Pirkei Avot that always kind of speaks to me, and that is, uh, in a place where there are no men, stand up and attempt to be a man. And so whether you can or you can't, what you can do, everybody can do what they can do, and you won't know until you try. And we all got to stand up and work on it and do what we can, and, uh, and that's just the way it is. Amen. And with that, and I will... Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, you might find a little help towards figuring out these kind of conversations if you look at our book. So, yeah, go ahead. So, uh, I'm Shimon, and that's Matthew, and this has been an interesting conversation for me anyway. And uh, all spurred along by this idea of this book, I do not think that word means what you think it means, which is kind of a lighthearted take on um, misunderstanding and intentionally misunderstanding things. Um, to kind of drive a broader point that when you're having a conversation with somebody, take a step back and make sure you're really understanding and not just a caricature of what you think their position is. Thank you and have a great day. That word.